We can uh, tend to see things from only one perspective until we cross paths with a person who sees things a little bit differently. The story is told of three buddies who die in a car crash and they go to heaven for the uh, orientation. They're all asked, uh, when you're in your casket and your friends and family are mourning upon you, what would you like to hear them say about you? The first man said, well, I'd like to hear him say that I was a great doctor of my time and also that I was a great family man. The second guy goes, well, you know what, I'd like to hear him say that, uh, you know, I was a wonderful husband and school teacher and that I made a difference in the children of tomorrow. The third guy thought for a couple of seconds and said, you know what, I'd like to hear more than anything else, more than anything else I'd like to hear him say as they stand next to my coffin, look, he's moving. I like that. There's always a little different perspective. Well, the first two guys limited their options. The third guy saw things a little differently. And as we've plotted throughout the book of Daniel, it's fascinating to me to find that uh, Daniel was a man who was wholly devoted to God. He was a man that was in love with God's word. He was a man that was a dedicated man when it came to prayer. And what's interesting about Daniel's life is that Daniel, because of that, because of his personal relationship with God, it caused him to see things differently than those around him. And uh, what's fascinating is that oftentimes, you know, the New Testament, the spiritual principles that we see in the New Testament are embodied in those in the Old Testament. And one of my favorite passages in the New Testament is how God commands us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I can't help but think that's exactly the life of Daniel, isn't it? A man who was not conformed to his world, but a man who was transformed by the renewing of his mind. And his mind was renewed because he was filled, basically it was saturated with biblical knowledge. He knew the word of God. And as a result, he wasn't conformed to this world. He didn't go with the flow. He didn't see things as everybody else saw things. He saw things from a very unique vantage point. And that was he saw things as God saw things. And because of that, he knew then that what God's will was in his life was good, and it was acceptable, and it was perfect. And that was the kind of man that Daniel is, the kind of man that we need to be, men and women, as we look and realize that God does not want us to be conformed to this world. He wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that takes place as we dig into the Word of God and we see the mind of God revealed to us through His Word. And that all Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. And that's the purpose of coming together. That's the purpose of digging into the Word of God so that we can discover the will of God. And as we obey God, we realize that God's will is good and it is acceptable and it certainly is perfect. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9 as we continue in our study of the book of Daniel. Specifically, in this particular passage, we're dealing with a very powerful prayer, a prayer that Daniel shares for our our benefit as we take a look at the power of prayer as exhibited in the life of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 1 through 23, we read these words. It says that it was in the first year of Darius, the son of Hazarerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books... The number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So so I gave my attention to the Lord God. He says in some passages, it's I set my face to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments We have sinned. 
We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. It says, Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us is open shame, as it is to this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all of Israel, those who nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they've committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings and our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set, set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all of Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. It says, Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of our Lord our God by turning away from iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for thyself, as it is this day, we have sinned and we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem, the holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and I people have become a reproach to all of those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant to his supplications. And for your sake, O God, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline thy ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. It says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive us. O Lord, listen and take attention for your own sake. O my God, do not delay because of all thy city and thy people are called by your name. It says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come now forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. In this prayer, there are basically three things that we talked about taking a look at. And in outline form, the first one was the circumstances that were surrounding the prayer of Daniel. We saw in verses 1 and 2, the circumstances surrounding the prayer had to do with the fact that Daniel, uh, number one, was aware of the word of God. 
The Bible says that he went into the scripture as the confusion of the day led him to go into the word of God to try to find out what exactly it was that God was trying to teach him and what it was that he can learn about the circumstances that were surrounding not only the nation of Israel, but the fall of Babylon, the rise of the Persian Empire and all those things. And we know that he turned to the word of God and it was in the word of God that he discovered the will of God in this particular matter. In Jeremiah 29, this is what led him to pray. It says, for thus says the Lord, verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, when 70 days have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and to give you a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And I shall be found by you. As Jeremiah, as, as uh, Daniel was looking at the circumstances around him, it says very clear that he dug into the word of God. It was through the word of God that God revealed what his will was for the people. And his will simply was very simply this, that they would be punished for their disobedience. But at the end of that period of time, at the end of the sentence, which was 70 years, God's people would turn to him and would pray and God would hear their prayers and he would restore them back to their land. And Daniel, being a simple man of faith, if the Bible said to do it, he just simply did it. The Bible said, we're going to pray, we're going to pray. And this is the prayer that we find here. He had an awareness of the word of God and the awareness of the word of God, which led him to prayer. Remember the formula for discovering the will of God is very simple. And that is this, a diligent study of the word of God followed by prayer will always lead us to the will of God and that which was good and acceptable and perfect. And that, that is how we also do not fall into conformity as far as the world is concerned. Who cares what everybody else thinks? Who cares what everybody else is doing? We need to find the mind of God, the will of God, and God will lead us in a direction that is proper before him. The word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It shows us where we are. It tells us where we need to go. That's as simple as it gets. He was aware of the word of God. The second thing is his approach to God was one of determination. I set my face. I was determined because God's word said to pray. I was determined to pray. And nothing was going to stop me. No one was going to stop me. And we already know that about his life. When the edict was issued that if anybody prayed, they would be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel continued to do what he had always done in his captivity. Three times a day, he would turn his face to Jerusalem and he would pray to God. He didn't care whether there was any consequences for his faith in God. He didn't have to apologize for his faith in God. We live in a culture today where people want to hear apologies for our faith in God. They want to hear us to say, I'm sorry. They don't want to hear any certainty coming from God's people. They don't want to hear the certainty of God's word. They want to hear that everybody is subject to their own opinions. Everybody can do what they want to do. And who are we to challenge what is being done, whether it's right or wrong? And who are we to say? People today hate certainty. They don't want to know with certainty what the will or mind of God is because they want to do what they want to do. And it's fascinating as we see it, we're all just as guilty, aren't we? Many of us who call ourselves God's people don't want to search the will, the will of God. We don't want to dig into the word of God because we want to do what we want to do and we don't want to know whether God says it's okay. See, the problem that we have in our culture today is we don't want to know the truth. But God's word is truth. The Lord said it himself. He said, Father, sanctify them. Speaking of God's people, he said, sanctify them in your truth. Thy word is truth. And that's basically what we're looking at. Daniel's approach to God was, I am going to pray because God says to pray. His attitude of the matter was one of humility. It says that he prayed and confessed to God and said, Oh, great and awesome God. And in his humility and sackcloth and fasting and ashes, he approached the throne of God. What's fascinating is he wasn't cocky and he wasn't arrogant. He was a man of great humility when he approached God because he knew who God was in light of who he was. And it's a fascinating study when we consider how arrogant some of us are as we approach God. We mentioned that the last time. What's interesting is we, as we continue to go on and we look at the conditions or the content of Daniel's prayer, 
we begin to see there are six things that I want to point out. We saw a couple of them last week. We'll, we'll get into the rest of them this week. The first thing that we recognize very clearly is in verse 4. If you look at that in your Bibles, he says, I prayed to the Lord God, my God. I prayed to the Lord, my God. Daniel was very clear that he had a very personal and intimate relationship with God. And it was important to him, as we look at this, that he understood what that relationship was all about. It says that he prayed and pleaded. It says he turned to the Lord, my God. Daniel had a personal, intimate relationship with God. He had entered into the relationship with God. Now, it's very important that we understand something here because you sit and go, well, how could he, Daniel, enter into a personal relationship with God? And the reason is very simple, and that's this, that Daniel believed the word of God and believed God and took him at his word. When God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation and God promised that one day he would send a savior into the world, God judged those in the Old Testament based on their belief in the word of God. When when Daniel looked forward to the promises of God, it was deemed to him to be righteous before God. Why? Because he believed that one day God would send a savior into the world. He believed in Jesus Christ. Though he had never lived to see the day that Jesus walked upon the face of the earth, he believed that God, when God said he would send a savior into the world, he put his faith and trust in him and in him alone. Now, you sit there and go, well, how can we, looking back, come into a relationship with God? Exactly the same way. We take God for his word. We believe what he says about Jesus Christ. We believe that he was God in human flesh who walked the face of the earth. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was sent to the cross to die for the sins of humanity. For those who would believe, he shed his blood on the cross. And we look back and we believe by faith, through faith, the same agency that Daniel had that made him right with God. We believe through faith that Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross. And God raised him three days later to confirm that he not only had the ability and the power to forgive sin, but also the power to give us life. The Bible says in John chapter 3, as we learned last time, that we must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. It's a simple matter of we come into the world dead spiritually. We must be born spiritually. The only way it takes place is when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For those who believe in him, to them he gave the privilege to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. To those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. And we can call God Father, Abba, Daddy. We have a personal, intimate relationship with God. And as a result, we also can go to God in prayer. And so Daniel knew that his relationship with God was so personal that he could come to the throne of God. And the Bible says that we can go to the throne of God with confidence because of our relationship with God, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. We can go with confidence to his throne. We can pray before God. And it says in that in the time of our need, we will find grace before God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? What a tremendous privilege it is to pray. And many of us take it for granted and don't understand it and don't do it. And so God says, hey, listen, man, I want you to understand something. I'm here. I'm accessible. Where you been? Daniel didn't hesitate. He knew his relationship with God and he immediately turned to God to pray. Now, the second thing that was pointed out as we take a look at this through verses 4 through 6, and that's simply this. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God, that intimate, he recognized his relationship to God. He says, and on top of that, he says, and I confessed and said, Alas, O Lord and great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice, we have sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled. We've even turned aside from thy commandments and ordinances. And then he goes on to say, and you know what? Not only that, moreover, we have not listened to your servants who came to us in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. The second thing that Daniel recognizes is their rebellion against God. 
He was very specific. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that because there's a lot of confusion in our culture today as to what it means to confess and to repent. And Daniel was very specific in his confession before God. He recognized the rebellion against God. And he said very specifically, we've sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned from your commandments. We've turned from your ordinances, your statutes, your testimonies, which all has to do with the word of God. And then he goes on and says, and if that's not bad enough, you even sent us, your servants, the prophets, to warn us of our continued disobedience as if it wasn't enough that you warned us once. You repeatedly sent them to us to warn us again and again and again and again and again and you know what we didn't listen to them either isn't that fascinating you know what's interesting to me is you talk to people today and and they have this misunderstanding about the compassion and the love of God if God's really a God of love let me tell you something there is no question about it for God is love and you and I don't even have the capacity to love if it wasn't for him because we love why because he first loved us we don't even know what love's all about. And we've got people in our culture accusing God of not being a God of love. Are you kidding me? Do you realize how many times he warns us of our disobedience? He warns us of the consequences of our actions. He warns us of the rejection of his love for us. He continues to warn us. Not only does he warn us through his word, but he warns us through people that he brings into our life on a regular basis who confront us with the truth of the word of God and we reject them too. Listen to me. This is a fascinating thing. And that is if somebody comes, to you, comes to, into your life And they say to you, listen, I want you to know how much God loves you. That he loved you so much and demonstrated this love that he sent Christ to die for you. Even while you are yet a sinner. Even while you are yet in rebellion against him. That all you need to do is in simple faith believe what he says about Jesus Christ. And accept him into your life. That you will find forgiveness. You will find atonement. You will find no consequences for your sin. Because now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. If you would just embrace that love, God says that you will become a child of God. Simply by believing in his name. And do you realize if you reject that message, that you haven't rejected your friend or your brother or your uncle or your sister or your cousin or your co-worker or your neighbor? You haven't rejected a human being. You've rejected God because he sent the messenger with the message. All we're doing is telling you how much God loves you because we have become recipients of the same love and we can't wait to share it with you. I was talking to a friend the other day and I said, do you realize, could you shut any, I mean seriously, could you even begin to shut up a person if a human being had done for us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? If a human being had done for us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, could you even try to shut that person up from going around telling the whole world about what a great person that person was? That person saved me from judgment. That person saved me from the condemnation of sin. I mean, we run around telling people, man, you know what? This person gave me my first break, gave me my first job, and I'll always be indebted to them. I deal with athletes all the time. That was the first coach to give me a chance, and I will never forget him for that. It's fascinating, isn't it? Here we are, God through Christ has saved us from the condemnation of God, has saved us from the fire of hell, has saved us from all the consequences of our sin, and yet we're being told by a world around us, you know what, try to keep that to yourself. Are you kidding me? How can you keep that to yourself? If we're running around bragging about each other, how much more so should we be bragging about God? It's interesting because, you know what, Daniel didn't have a problem letting everybody know. Daniel was a man of prayer and he recognized the rebellion against God. And as we see this, the third thing that he also recognized is in verses 7 and 8, if we want to take a look at that in your Bibles, it would probably be a lot easier than to read these overheads. But in verses 7 and 8, I mean, I can't even read it, I'm standing right here. So that's why it's a good idea to bring a Bible. Anyway, uh, Romans, uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, look what he says. 
Okay, he recognized his relationship to God. It was personal and intimate. He recognized their rebellion against God. They not only walked away from his word, but they rejected the servants of God who were sent by God to speak the truth to them. But notice also in verses 7 and 8, it says, Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us is open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. I want you to notice something. Daniel recognized the results of sin. He recognized the results of sin. Notice, God, you are right. You notice that in verse 7? Righteousness belongs to you. Now, the contrast, when you see the word but, is a contrast of thought. But to us is open shame. You notice that? You are right. We are wrong. Righteousness belongs to you. But to us is open shame. We could spend the rest of the time talking about the consequences of sin. You know it and I know it. We could talk a lot about it. We can talk about a messed up life. We can talk about maybe ended up in a, your marriage ended up in a divorce as a result of sin. We could talk about people that are in prison that we know as a result of sin and the violation of laws of this land. We can talk about bad health. We can talk about physical disease. We can talk about emotional and mental distress as a consequence of sin. We can talk about family problems. And God knows Thanksgiving time brings out the best in that. We, we know that. You know that. And if, and if, and if, there is a, if there's no stronger argument for the depravity of man, I don't know what there is. The holiday season. We see our humanity in the absolute worst and in sometimes the absolute best. And you know what? And even that great when it's at its best. So the point is this. We see all that. You can experience financial problems because of it. There are a lot of consequences of sin. While all of these certainly are true, I want you to notice and not miss what Daniel focuses upon. And that is this. He focuses upon the term, he says, to us is open shame. To us is open shame. To us is open shame. Meaning this, to us is embarrassment. To us, as we look around, the consequences of sin are far from private. The world sees exactly how you dealt with us. And you know what? Not only does it see how you've dealt with us, but it's also important to realize that we deserve what it is that you did. To us is open shame. Daniel's attitude of humility is one where he goes like this, basically saying, you know what, God, I am so embarrassed by what I've done. I'm so embarrassed by what we've done as a people that I'm embarrassed to even come to you and discuss this with you. But you know what? But I thank you for the privilege of being able to do it. His attitude of humility is one of, I'm embarrassed by everything that's going on. Now, here's an application. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Open shame, public embarrassment should be a very good deterrent from choosing to sin. You follow me? Open shame and public embarrassment should be a huge deterrent from wanting to sin. Let me give you an illustration from my background. Went to a private Catholic school when I was young. We had a teacher who was a football coach who was probably, I would say, the master of the open shame discipline technique. Some of you ever had one of those? This guy was the master of the open shame discipline technique, even though I didn't know at the time that it actually was, you know, a biblical concept. Open shame, okay? Here's what it do. Here are his two favorite choices of discipline. 
The first choice was, and this was, I think we were probably six, I think sixth grade, somewhere in there. But the first choice was, and he was a big guy. He had forearms like Popeye. Popeye's forearms were little compared to this guy. He was huge. His first choice of discipline, not necessarily in this order, but this is one of his choices, would be to have you just come up if you were goofing off in class, and he'd just have you come up to the front of the room, he'd turn his chair, and have you just light, drape yourself across his knee, and he had this big old nasty paddle. You know, and it was, it was huge. And you know, and when you're in sixth grade, it was even bigger than it is today. But it was huge then. You know, it's a perspective thing. It was huge. And it just come up, and in, in, in a humiliating fashion, you would just drape yourself, you speaking in general, uh, would drape yourself across this guy's knees, and he would grab this thing and just go, wow! Oh! Mmm! The second choice, which was another fascinating one, was where he would have you if you were messing around. And I'm thinking about employing this, so I just want to let you know. And I'm thinking about Tom being my first example over there. But I want you to understand that, that here's what he would do. He would have you, if you were messing around, hey, he'd call you up front, he'd send you over to the bookcase, and he'd have you grab two huge dictionaries or phone books. Then what he'd do is he'd have you kneel down over in the corner, and he'd have you kneel there holding these things Palm down, books down like this. Okay? This is great. <laughs> Seriously. So, so we got the, big, the, the, the stud of our football team, the biggest, baddest dude in the class, messing around one day. He calls him up front, tells him to go get the books. He has that smirk on his face, like, I'm going to conquer the books. He goes over, grabs him, he kneels there. And you see this. After about five minutes, he's like, and he goes, hey, hold those books up. And then he starts crying, big sissy. He starts, he starts crying. And then I'm thinking, man, you know what? What's the lesson here? How many people do you think messed around in his class? Everyone's sitting there going, he's the biggest, baddest dude in the class. He broke in five minutes. I couldn't even hold him up for a second. Everyone's like, we're here to learn, sir. <laughs> I love it. You know why? Because, you know what? There wasn't chaos in that classroom. The inmates weren't running the asylum. Like today. We learned something. I learned something I never forgot. Public humiliation isn't a fun thing. Think of this, I mean, if, you, if you think about something here, the question for you is this. Where are those who are ashamed of their sin today? Where are those who are embarrassed by their wrong behavior, who are broken and humbled before God and before others? Daniel noted uh, that their, sh- their shame was open, that it was public. It belonged to us. They took responsibility for it. They deserved it. God was right. I was wrong. Why did it become a public matter? Simply because God allowed them for a number of years to judge themselves in private and they chose not to do it. He warned them continually, what you're doing is wrong before God, you better stop it. They said, hey, you know what? I don't see any consequences for it. I'm going to continue to do it. So they didn't judge themselves in private, so it became a public matter. Guilt and shame are appropriate responses and, and, and are appropriate results of sin. It sends a message to others. It says, you know what? If you're thinking about doing it, I wouldn't recommend it. Don't do it. It's embarrassing. It's wrong. That's why I'm so concerned 
about the apparent apathy in our country today towards the sin of our president or any other authority figure. I'm concerned for the message that it sends. The message that it sends is there are no consequences for wrong conduct. That's what it sends. Whether you like it or not, whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, don't buy into all the political spin of this. We're looking at human behavior and we're judging it according to the righteous judgment or standard, objective standard of God. When a society is no longer outraged by sin, it is doomed and there is no remedy. God will judge us. You can bank on it. He did, with not, he did not withhold judgment from his own people. He certainly will not hold with judgment from the rest of the world that disobeys his ordinances, his statutes, his commandments, his testimonies. Open judgment is often seen in the breakdown of law and order in society. If you stop and think about it, I want you to listen carefully to an editorial that I ran across that I think sums it up best, but it kind of ties in and I don't want you to miss it. The headline grabbed my attention. That's why I thought it would be interesting to read. The headline was, Oh, let's just pardon all the perjurers and go home. Since Republicans know they'll not impeach President Clinton, they should drop the pretense and join in the Democrats in attacking independent counsel Kenneth Starr. It says it's silly for Republicans to hold impeachment hearings on the Democratic president when they are in the middle of punishing themselves for making a national issue of Clinton's lies and cover-ups. Since Clinton has, has an affair with a White House intern, lies about it to everybody on earth, both face-to-face and under oath, and Republicans want to throw their leaders out of office. That certainly is odd. It says his approval ratings in the November 3rd midterm elections prove to Republicans that Americans don't care how many women Clinton propositions, gropes, or has affairs with. More importantly, Republicans believe voters will punish them if they attempt to punish him. It's an Alice in Wonderland world when the Democratic president can engage in condemnable, immoral behavior, commit both civil and criminal perjury, and leave Republicans shaking in their boots. All the Republicans want to do now is get rid of their impeachment, far this, this impeachment tar baby as quickly as possible. A vote to censure Clinton would have no meaning because it carries no consequences. Besides, a censure might cause a voter backlash, which is what Republicans now fear most. Since that's how Republicans think, the only safe course for them during the ill-fated impeachment hearings is to join the Democrats. Let's blame Ken Starr for embarrassing Clinton and the rest of the nation. Republicans should call for Starr's prosecution and ask for Clinton's forgiveness and for the trouble caused by this straight arrow special prosecutor so out of touch with prevailing American values. With the impeachment hearings behind them and Starr thrown so far back into prison, the jailers have to shoot biscuits to him. Republicans could return to whatever they were doing before he came along. But first, Republicans need to join Clinton and the Democrats in a bipartisan effort to ensure that no American suffers the legal harassment endured by Clinton. As a first step, Clinton needs to pardon Dr. Barbara Badalino, the former Veterans Affairs psychiatrist who lost her medical license after she was convicted of perjury for lying about having sex with a veteran client. She lied to keep an embarrassing sexual relationship private. Clinton must order the military to pin wings back on Lieutenant Kelly Flynn, who was kicked out of the Air Force for lying about a sexual affair. While he's at it, Clinton should order the military to eliminate adultery as an offense under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Congress should withhold federal aid from states that list it as a crime. Besides Dr. Battigliano, Clinton needs to pardon all 115 convicts now serving sentences for perjury in federal prison. According to a Tuesday New York Times study by William Glaberson, in California alone last year there were 4,318 felony perjury cases. Thousands of Americans are prosecuted annually for lying under oath in both civil and criminal cases. A Florida Postal Service, according to Glaberson, now is in prison for denying in a civil deposition that she had a sexual relationship with a subordinate. Sound familiar? She needs an immediate pardon. 
By working with Democrats to pardon convicted perjurers and eliminate perjury and adultery laws, Republicans can now move safely back in the mainstream and join Clinton in about going about the nation's important business. I hope you sense the sarcasm that's in that editorial. And I hope you also sense that we have become a very confused people when it comes to moral standards. I hope that you can understand the breakdown of law and order and the message that it sends to our culture when those who are in a position of authority are not held accountable for their actions. I hope that you can understand why it's so important that a pastor remain morally pure before his congregation and society because the only message that we send to people is that we stand for a standard that is different than the rest of the world and why it is so disturbing and so uh, demeaning when someone who upholds the truth of the Word of God becomes guilty of the same standard and then expects to stand before people and say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, we all do it anyway. What a bunch of nonsense that is. What a, what, a, what a confusing message that it sends. What hypocrisy that it is. That's why it's so important that those who are in a leadership position be held to an accountability that sometimes is even greater than the masses of people. But in this particular case, it's not even equivalent to the masses of people. But there's no outrage. There's no concern. There's no voice crying, crying out and saying, what, are we, what have we become? And I'm concerned because it was in the days of judges where the people began to do what was right in his or her own, own sight. When you begin to do what you think is right in your own sight, not using the Word of God as a means to be able to objectively measure it, then you're in trouble and so am I. Daniel recognized, and as we look at this, he goes on and says, you know what, what's fascinating is, you know what, God, God didn't hesitate to judge His own people. God didn't hesitate to make them a public spectacle. God didn't hesitate. And the message to the world is this. If God doesn't hesitate to judge His own people, how much more so will He judge those who have rejected Him? Interesting. See, God is just. None of us. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. That's the warning that God gave continually over and over again. Oh, let's move on to something that's not as convicting because we certainly wouldn't want to be challenged in how we think. Verses 9 through 13, Daniel recognizes their resistance was to God Himself. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for, he is, for we have rebelled against Him. Do you notice that? We have rebelled against Him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings what He set before us through His servants, the prophets. He goes on to say that indeed all of Israel has transgressed thy law, turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us. The one you warned us about, you followed through with, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Let me get something very clear to you, a fundamental, uh, a fundamental truth of the word of God that you need to grasp, that Daniel grasps in this prayer, and that is this. Daniel recognized their resistance was to God himself. Do you follow that? Listen to me. All sin is against God. It isn't about people, although that certainly is a factor, but we must always remember that all sin is resistance to God and His authority in our lives. What God calls sin is sin, 
always has been, it is, and always will be. It doesn't matter how many people we can gather together to join us in our behavior or what the public opinion polls indicate. It doesn't matter if the other person is doing it or deserves what you've done to him or her. The only thing that matters is what does God have to say about it? And if he says it's wrong, it's wrong. Period. End of conversation. It's done. No sense debating it. You can't change it. Why? Because the Word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and God's not going to change His mind. Think about it. All sin is against God. The Bible was filled with men and women who resisted the authority of God in their lives. And those who come immediately to mind were Adam and Eve, Cain, Moses, Saul. How about Jonah? How about King David? Every one of them immediately come to mind as being men that were told and women that were told to do something or not to do something and they chose to say, I'm doing it anyway. They resisted the authority of God in their life. Psalm 51 was probably the turning point in the life of King David. If you've got your Bibles, flip back to Psalm 51. I want to show you something because it's critical for our understanding of what confession and, forg- and repentance are all about. Psalm 51 is a tremendous psalm and basically it sums up King David was guilty of adultery and he was guilty of murder. He had sexual relationships outside of his marriage with a woman named Bathsheba. Her husband was Uriah. He was a Hittite. Uriah uh, was away at a battle when David had sex with Bathsheba. She became impregnated by their relationship. And now David was trying to figure out a way to cover it all up. So what he did was he sent Uriah to the front line so that he'd be killed in battle. And so God says that David was a man who was an adulterer, he was a murderer, and yet the Bible also says something about David that is fascinating to me, and that's this. Every time his name is mentioned throughout the Word of God, it says, and he, speaking of the kings who did right before God, it says this, he walked in the ways of David his father who did right all the days of his life. You go, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? It means this. In Psalm 51, David came before God. It was about a year after this experience. He came before God and he said this, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. He's not saying, hey, God, you have to forgive me because I'm King David. He's saying, God, you be gracious to me based on your mercy, based on who you are. Not based on me and what I've done because I don't deserve any mercy. I don't deserve any grace. I don't even deserve forgiveness. But you be gracious according to your loving kindness and your compassion blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And he says, and against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. The turning point of David's life. And I believe that David would have disappeared off of the pages of Scripture if he hadn't come to this point in his relationship with God. That's a sign of maturity. It's a sign of spiritual understanding. When he said this, God, you are right and I am wrong. What you said I shouldn't do, I did. I take full responsibility for that. And whatever you decide to do from a judgment standpoint, you're blameless and you're righteous and I'm wrong, and I throw myself on your mercy. No ifs, ands, or buts, no agenda of my own, no cutting anybody a deal. I am wrong, you are right. And not only, the, not only that, but notice what he says. God, I have sinned against you. Here's the confusion of our culture today. 
something is wrong or right because God deems it wrong or right. You notice? So when we violate what God says is wrong, it's not a matter of me sinning against you. I mean, although that takes into consideration and that's what society judges us for. But if I sin against you and what I do against you is wrong before God, ultimately, I've rejected God's authority in my life because I haven't taken into consideration what He's had to say about the behavior that I've just embarked upon. Do you follow that? Now, here's where we get messed up because we live in a culture today that says, well, who are we to say that sex outside of marriage is wrong? I mean, if after all, if Bill and Hillary cut a deal and they think that it's okay, what's a, it's none of our business. You know, who are we? Because they may have worked it out. You know, it's none of our business. That's what goes on is what goes on, blah, blah, blah. Here's the problem. What does God say about what their deal's all about? I don't know if they have a deal, but I'm just saying. That's, I mean, that's the, 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 the uh, demented reasoning that we have in our culture today. Who cares whether they got a deal? Who cares if we all get together and agree that we can all start to do something? It doesn't make one bit of difference if God says, I don't care, it's wrong. That's why David said, you know what, my sin, although my sin was against Uriah, my sin was against Bathsheba, my sin was against my people, my sin goes even greater than that because all sin ultimately is against God. Listen to me, if you're a young person, your sin isn't against your parents, or a teacher, or a coach, or an employer, or government and law enforcement, you can't get off that easy. Your sin, if you're sinning, is against God and Him alone. And while we as parents or teachers or coaches or bosses may never even catch those who sin against us, God doesn't miss anything. He doesn't miss a thing. And you need to understand it. David understood it. He got to the point in his life where he said, Hey, you know what? God, I was wrong. And he specified it. I was wrong. I accept responsibility for my action. And it's important that we recognize and understand that that is confession and that is repentance according to God's definition. I want you to hang in there with me for a second because it's really important. Confession in Scripture is this. Agreeing with God as to what God says. That's all confession is. God, I agree with you. What we did, Daniel's saying, I agree with you. What we did was wrong. Your word was clear. We chose to rebel. What we did was wrong. Repentance is turning away from our rebellion. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I'm going to walk this direction to God. I'm going the wrong way. I agree with what you have to say. And repentance is turning away from our decision, away from that action that's wrong before God, and turning towards God and towards doing that which is right. That is repentance. It always has to do with turning away from sin and turning towards God and doing what is right before God. It is not lip service. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's just all forget about it. That'd be so nice, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I get every prisoner in prison today is hoping he gets away with it. Because if we can all just say, I'm sorry, let's all go home. What a demented, fallen society we will become. Why? Because there's got to be consequences for wrong actions. There has to be. Daniel recognized it. To us was open shame and embarrassment. And not only did he recognize that, but he also recognized that, you know what, as we take a look at this, he, he recognized that, you know what, <laughs> their resistance was to God himself. 
The fifth thing is this. Daniel also recognized, look in verse 14, the righteousness of God in, in bringing judgment for their sin. I love this. You ever hear somebody say, well, how can God, how can God send somebody to hell? How can God do that? I'll tell you how He can do it. Because whatever He chooses to do, He's right. Duh. You may, you, know, you may not like it, but guess what? Whatever He chooses to do, He's right. But how can somebody who has gone to church all their life but just won't believe in Jesus Christ, how can God send such a good person to hell? Because God is right in whatever He chooses to do. That's how. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is right. He's righteous with respect to all His deeds which He has done. But we, on the other hand, have not obeyed His voice. How can God do what, he did, what He's going to do as far as judgment is concerned? Easy. He's right and we're wrong. But the wonderful thing is, is that as we go through and look at this, He says, you know what? Look at verse 15 through 19. He says, you know what? But our redemption is in God. Isn't that great? Our hope is in God. And now, O Lord, our God, who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for yourself, as it is to this day, we have sinned. We've been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem, the holy mountain. For because of our sins and iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and the people have become a reproach to all of those around us. So, so now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. For your sake, O Lord... Let your face shine on your, on your desolate sanctuary. Oh my God. And here's that determination in his prayer. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear me. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which you call by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own. You notice that? It's for your sake. You look at your holy city. You look at your people. You see what we're going through. And you know what his point is that he's making? You'll be moved by compassion because I know you're a compassionate and loving God. You see the heartache of your people. You see the desolation of your sanctuary. You see the desolation of your, of your temple. You, you know the reputation that now you have before the world. One who has brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and now are your embar an embarrassment to the world around you. You see all of that, God. You just take a good look and then you do what you think is right to do. I'm not going to demand anything. Because I know you. I trust you. I'm intimately related to you. I know what you're like. I know what kind of compassions that you have. Lord, see my life and you just judge accordingly. It says, O oh Lord, hear and O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action for thine own sake. O oh my God, don't delay because thy city and thy people are called by your name. Can I make something very clear as we go through this and, and wrap this up? <clears throat> Daniel recognized the redemption of God was their only hope. He recognized the redemption of God was their only hope. His only hope and our only hope lies in God and in who He is and in His character. Not in ours. Not in anything that man could do. There's nothing that you and I could ever do to be right before God. God knows that. The Bible is a book of redemption. If you recall in our study of the book of Ruth, that God in Christ is buying back that which was lost. That which was lost when Adam chose to sin through one man's sin entered into the world and because of him came death. Also through one man, Jesus Christ, we can have life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our only hope, mankind's only hope in redemption is through Jesus Christ. And that was his point. We have no hope in and of ourselves. We're miserable. We screw up all the time. There's nothing good in us. Even on our best day, we're, we're, we're not good. 
And he goes through and he tries to explain it. You see, when we come to God in prayer, we appeal to His mercy. Not our performance, not our worthiness. Oh God, you owe me. No, no, no. Oh God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And we try to cut a deal. Oh, no, no. You know what? Daniel understood. Daniel went to God and just said, God, you do whatever it is that you want to do. And the third thing that, that, I, that you have to look at is the confession of Daniel for his own sin. The confession of Daniel for his own sin. And we'll close on this. It says, while I was speaking in verse 20 and praying, confessing my sin. Have you ever talked to a person who just quite, doesn't quite see their need to be forgiven by God? You know, those good people that you run into. Those people that maybe have gone to church all their life. Those people that, you know, give money to the poor. They donate their time, you know, in charity work. There's good people that, you know, they're just good people. After all, they haven't murdered anybody. <clears throat> they reason. They haven't, <clears throat> excuse me, they haven't really done anything that they would consider to be wrong. They're just good people. I want you to consider something for a moment. I want you to consider the life of Daniel. Daniel, if we were going by man's standards, lived a pretty good life. There is no mention in the Word of God at all as to any of Daniel's frailty or any of his wrong choices and consequences thereof. We hear it with Moses. We hear it of David. We hear it of Jonah. We hear it of Peter. We hear it of Paul. We hear it of everybody else in Scripture just about that, you know, they screwed up at one point or, or another. But in Daniel, we never find any evidence of that at all, do we? But I want you to notice something about Daniel that he knew because he understood the Word of God, and that was this. That Daniel, when he confessed, he started out by confessing his sin. He recognized, as the Bible teaches clearly, that through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and as a result, death. I don't, listen to me, I don't care how good you think you are, God says you're not. He says that you are a child by nature of wrath. David himself in Psalm 51 says that it was in sin that my mother conceived me and I came forth. That it is a hereditary problem that every human being is born with what's called sin in their life. It's called the depravity of man. It's called original sin. It's called whatever it is you want to think about. Bottom line is this. Every one of us are flawed. And it doesn't take a genius to see how true that is. The Bible says that God gave His laws or commandments to us so that we would recognize how flawed we are. Because God says, hey, if you could work your way to heaven by keeping my commandments, then you should be able to do that. But the problem is nobody can. The law, according to Galatians, was a teacher or tutor leading us to our need for Christ. Why? Because I don't care how good you are, you know that you're not perfect. I don't care whether you've murdered anybody, you know that you've lied. I don't care whether you've ever raped anybody, you know that you've cheated or that you've stolen. Or that you, if nothing else, have you always put God first in your life? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your might, heart, heart, soul, and strength and to keep Him first, that you shouldn't have any other gods before Him. Have you always kept Him first in your life? If nothing else, we're all guilty of that. When you're a child growing up, but do you always honor your mother and father? The answer is, of course not. No, you didn't. The bottom line of what I'm trying to say is what Daniel recognized and what God teaches very clearly, and that's this. There are none righteous, no, not one. That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Daniel himself realized that. What's fascinating to me is even Mary, chosen to be the mother of Christ, realized her need for a Savior when she prayed and she recognized the day when God would send to her my Savior. 
Why would she need a Savior if she didn't know that she was a sinner? Because she knew what God knows and what God teaches us. We are all sinners. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us can boast. The root sin of man is pride. And some of us get the hair standing up on the back of our neck when we hear these words because the indignation is filling our soul where we're saying, who is that guy to tell me that I am a sinner before to God and that I'm going to be judged for my sin and that if I reject Jesus Christ that I'm going to hell? Who does he think that he is? He doesn't even know me. God does. God knows you. And let me tell you something. And the reason that he shares that with you is because he loves you. Notice Daniel in verse 23. The angel Gabriel came to him, and we'll talk more about this next week when we've got more time to get into it because God is going to send to Daniel an answer to his prayer about what Israel has to look forward to in the days ahead. But I want you to notice this and close on this because there's nothing more important than this. In verse 23, we read this. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, listen, why did God send Gabriel to tell Daniel? He says, because you are highly esteemed. Another version is, because you are greatly loved. Do you realize that? That you and I are greatly loved by God. That's why He has sent us the Word of God to guide us into all truth. That's why God lays it all out very clearly. God loves you. God loves me. And the truth seems harsh at times, but it's only the truth that will set you free. It's only the truth that will reveal in your heart that, you know what, you know that you're not perfect. It's only the truth that reveals the fact that, and if you continue to be stubborn before God and you continue to reject the, the gift that God's had to offer, guess what? When God judges you for that rejection and that pride and that arrogance that you don't need Him, He is right in what He does. But the wonderful news is you're greatly loved. And so He shares with you the simplicity of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is this, for God so loved this world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The question I ask for you is this. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? The Bible says, if you have, you become a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. That you become a child of God to those who believe in His name. And you say to yourself, but it's too simple. Hey, you know what? But the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth. This is God's plan. It's His program. All He does is He shares it with you and He gives you the freedom to choose. All I would say is choose wisely. Do not reject the free gift of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you've believed in Him and trusted Him, God says this, that you have a privilege now to go to God, the throne of grace, and pray and have, and have a fellowship with God, the Creator of the universe, and spend time with Him in our hour of need. Why? That you may find grace and you may find mercy. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and we thank you that because we are greatly loved or highly esteemed that you sent this truth to us. God, I just pray for those who are here that struggle with this truth, that don't want to believe it, but yet in their heart they know it's true, that you're drawing them to yourself, that they would just surrender today that they would give their life to you, that they would believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would be made right because they've chosen to receive that free gift that's offered to all who would believe. God, we just thank you for that marvelous, wonderful gift, an indescribable gift, a gift that we can't even put into words of how much you loved us. And yet, while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. 
God, the intimacy that we can have once we have a relationship with you is incredible. It's miraculous that we can boldly approach the throne of grace and confidence because of our relationship in Christ, knowing that in our hour of need that we can come to you and that you'd be willing to meet that need and show us grace. God, we thank you for Daniel, a man not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of his mind as he dug into the word of God and as, he, as his will he turned over to you. And he said, basically, Lord, not my will be done, but yours. And we just thank you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.